0: Welcome to the fourth installment of the Marshall Graham interviews. These are interviews I recorded for my Rhodes College Econ 265, the Economics of Racetrack Wagering Markets class. Today, we are going to play an interview that I recorded with Tom Van Berg on January 12th. It was my first interview for the class. Again, we're talking about horse racing. Where better to start than with a trainer? We take a deep dive into uh, how Tom trains, uh, you know, and we go into shoeing and bits and LASIKs and um, fitness, how to identify a sprinter versus a um, a route horse, uh, how he trains those horses differently, how he trains turf and tur- dirt differently. So we take quite a bit of a deep dive here. It's a 90 minute interview. It was the first interview I recorded, so the quality is not ideal, but uh, I still think it is enjoyable. Uh, if you have not had a chance, I hope you can listen to the three other interviews we've recorded with Randy Moss, Dick Girardi, and Maury Wolf, And as always, these interviews are sponsored by Millridge Farm. Millridge Farm stands Oscar Performance and Aloha West. They have generously um, sponsored this podcast. Um, And instead of compensating me, they have made a generous donation to the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. We are so pleased to have them as a sponsor. And again, I hope you enjoy my interview with Tom Van Berg. So anyway, I'm talking to Tom Van Berg. He's a i guess are you third generation trainer would you be yeah. a third yeah. generation third trainer? Generation. his uh, mm-hmm. grandfather marion van berg was a 1970 hall of fame class a perennial leading owner uh, and trainer in nebraska and his father's hall of famer 1985 class jack van berg won 6,500 race races uh, campaigned horse of the year ali sheba preakness winner gate dancer and uh uh, Tom, I guess it—you uh, uh, know—your you, sort of destiny was was to become a horse trainer. Can you just give me a little bit about your background? I, I see you were, were training for a while and got out of it, then came back in. If you could just give me a little bit of your profile.
1: Yeah, I was uh, actually my, my my parents divorced when I was young. My dad was always on the road with the horses. Uh, he was probably one of your first uh, multi-operational type trainers, where he'd have four or five different strings at four or five different tracks uh, to out, so he did go from track to track. Um, and so he was on the road all the time back in those days, uh, to have your name as trainer on the program as the program trainer, you had to be at that track at least one day out of the week. Uh, now, now these guys with the, the assistance and 300 horses, um, they might not see their horses for two months, three months. And, uh, the rules have changed a little bit, but back then he was on the, the, the flights, you know, all the time. And so I grew up, you know, on the road and, and, uh, I was actually, uh, Oklahoma bred and Louisiana fold, uh, at the different meets back in the day. And then, um, but I grew up mostly in Nebraska. And so then I went to, uh, uh, my mom's. one of her, um, uh, requirements was for me to go to college. I went to college at Arizona state university and studied, uh, interdisciplinary studies of aerospace engineering and business management. And then, uh. I went out to California where my dad had his main string at the time and worked on some work compensation, uh, workman's compensation issues out there. And when I was doing that, he got me into the barn and, and uh, the rest is history. I never, never really left for very long after that.
0: So you were an engineer. Did you ever do practice engineering at all or, or what was sort of the logic I, I, behind, I did,
1: behind that? I did major not thing. when I graduated. Uh, McDonald, Douglas and Lockheed were, that was during the times when they had the massive layoffs. And so I never even really actually got through the, the, um, went through the interview processes with, with any of the company, main companies. And, uh, what happened is, is, um, I went to Europe. I, I figured I was going to do, uh, take all my vacation before I started my career. Cause I didn't think I'd get any vacation when I started my career. So I went to Europe and worked my way across Europe for four and a half months and hooked up with a guy from uh, australia and i was going to go work uh, bartending on the gold coast and the two ways you go through from australia from europe is either through japan or through los angeles and so i said why don't you come to los angeles i'll work for a couple months there make some money out in california my dad and i'll meet you over in australia and so that's when i came back through la and that's when i started working on the workman's compensation at the time it was i think 33 cents on the dollar which was crazy um, and we got it down to about 13 cents on the dollar, uh, by doing a co-op with all the trainers out there in California. And then, uh, when I was working on that part of the deal, uh, my father said, you know, you're not doing anything at five in the morning. while you you come out to the track and, and uh, help me. So that's how I got, uh, I never, never went back to the engineering part of it.
0: So were you then an assistant for me Dad, from that point forward or, or, or what?
1: No, actually, I was, uh, mucking stalls, walking hot, um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do a lot of that growing up because he was always on the road. The only time I really worked with the horses was really in the summer. And uh, from when I was very young, he, we always had a training center in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I come here in the summers and paint fences and mend fences and and uh, work with the the weanlings and the yearlings and the broodmares, and uh, a little bit in the training barn. Um, so I did more of the the uh, the labor on the farm more so than the actual training of the thoroughbreds growing up.
0: Well, let, let's get into a little bit about your role as a trainer. Why don't you first just break down a day in the life of a trainer, like how your sort of day, your routine is set on a on a typical day of of training and racing.
1: Yeah, the, the hardest probably part about the trainer is the time, uh, your hours of operation, and um, you basically are three sixty five. You don't stop anytime. time. So weekends, when you normally have off of a normal job, that's usually your business because you're racing. Uh, our 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 what we call dark days is when most tracks are not running our Monday and Tuesday, some Wednesdays. Um but normally what you do is you get to the track depending on when the track opens. Now ninety five percent of the tracks train early in the morning, either starting at five thirty or six. And so uh my usually workday starts about forty five minutes to an hour before our first set goes out to the racetrack. So I'll get to the barn either work from four thirty to five thirty, depending on the track we're at. And uh you know the biggest thing i've learned is and i don't think it happens in, in some of the larger barns but every day before we send a horse out of the stall we go and check their legs either my my assistant or myself and my assistant he's been with my family for 40 years he was actually you mentioned gate dancer on the preakness he was the groom for gate dancer in 1984 and he's been with either my father or myself for for 40 years and uh so we go check the legs of every horse, the feet, the legs, the joints, the, the soft tissue, the ligaments, the tendons, um, and make sure we have no inflammation or no heat in them. And uh, that's where, where we start our day every day. That's the foundation of our our program is, is we make sure these horses are 100%. We don't have any question marks when they go off the track, uh, either to you know progress an injury that we didn't know they had, or or you know exacerbate an injury that, that's ongoing. So that's the first step we do. We check every horse in the morning. Okay. And then the next thing you're doing is you're checking for their feed. You want to make sure that they, they're, they've cleaned up their feed tubs. Uh, that's a big part of the equation. You, if they don't clean up their feed tubs, you're looking for, you know, issues, if they have a fever, uh, why they're not, you know, eating up, is there something that's bothered them? That's that's kind of where you, you start your day is you assess each individual and uh, kind of get a baseline of where they are. After you, you check the horses uh, in the morning, then we go through our training program, which usually is, is somewhere from 5:30 or six until, uh, some, some of the later tracks are like Oakland on the off days or 11 o'clock. And so they actually go out to the track and, and will train and exercise. And so we, we go through those and we monitor every every horse that goes out and make sure everything's going right. And once you get done with that, then you go back to the stalls uh, and the grooms that take care of the horses are, you know, working on the horses, either rubbing them down or, or working on their legs and uh, then we go through and assess each horse after they train to make sure everything's good there. Um, a lot, of, a lot of your your feedback you get from horses, and, and this is probably the, the most important thing for for horsemen is nonverbal. So horses can't speak, so we're watching body language. Uh, we're watching how they eat, um, basically how comfortable they are on their stall. If there's any changes to their you know behavior patterns in their stall, or when they're training, or when they're walking afterwards. And that's that's where you you start noticing um, the onset the on, you know, onset of problems, and so that, that's that's the most critical part of our day is from probably five in the morning until ten thirty or eleven, uh, and then we'll feed them lunch. And depending on if you have a race there or not, if if you're not racing, you have the next couple hours off to uh, go over your training charts or watch you know race replays of what what we did the, the previous week. Um, or what we're looking for the the next week you know coming up, and then uh, you usually come back to feed time around 3:30, and basically we do the same thing we will take the bandages off, check their legs, uh, get their dinner ready, uh, do any medical you know therapies that we need to, um, you know getting ready for a race either you you know, nebul- nebulization or you know cryotherapy or uh, equine spas the hydro spas. Uh, laser work, uh, MagnaWay. There's there's all kinds of therapies these horses get. It's 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 amazing because I think the common notion for the public is you know we're using these animals as basically just commodities and these these animals are like family and they they get treated as such and they have um, there, there's no you know expense spared to treat them and get them in the best possible you know, performance capabilities that they can. And, and so uh, we're always looking to see how we can make it better if they have muscle strains or ligament strains or, you know, a, a, a knee's bothering or an ankle's bothering you know, or a throat issues. Uh, you know, they have the same problems that humans do. And So any athlete that's competing is going to come up with strains or sore throats or breathing problems or, or, you know, ligaments or joints. And so we're always trying to assess those through the day. Um, every chance we get to put our eyes on And the more time you spend with the horse – physically the more um in tune you are with what's going on with that horse so that's a big part of our program
0: one thing that always amazes me by uh, when i go to the backside is just how much activity there is not only in terms of the number of horses that are out there but the number of people and so i know that you know i read some stat there's like 1.7 horses per every person on the backside uh so like uh you know just break down for me like uh uh you know how many uh you know, horses do you have per groom, hot walker, exercise rider, assistant, uh, all the people sort of are on your staff uh, that oversee your, help
1: oversee your horse operation? My preferred ratio um, for grooms, now groom is the, the individual that takes care of the horses, uh, is, is one groom for four horses. Now, because the labor's changed in the last year, we've kind of pushed that up to one groom to five horses. Um, and then, then the, the hot walkers are the, the, the employees that cool the horses out and they'll walk them after they, they train or, you know, if they don't train, they'll walk them regardless of cold, cold walkers. But, um, so I, I usually have one per five on each of those. So one hot walker will get five horses in the day. And, you know, times have changed and I struggle with it come very old school. And, and back when I, you know, was with my father before he passed away, I trained with him. You would you would cool a horse out for 55 minutes, uh, and you know after every training routine. And and the, the, one of the big issues is horses are not meant to be in a 12 by 12 or 10 by 10 stall, 23 hours out of the day. I mean they're out to be out in the out in the open, out in the pastures, grazing, and they they you know roam around. And and so that's a big problem when it comes to dealing with behavioral problems when they're they're in a stall. And so we try to get them out as much as we can. So now really going from 55 minutes when I was, you know, going through it in the seventies, eighties and into the nineties. Now, you know, most, most trainers are down to 30 minutes to 35 minutes of walking after they do. So you're trying to, I try to give them as much as I can. So by keeping the number of horses that each hot walker has, I can kind of increase the, the amount of minutes they get to walk after they train. So usually we're about 45 to 50 minutes. They're walking after they train. Um, so you try to keep that about one to five. Is, is the maximum I like. Now, other outfits that go, they'll take one groom and he'll have eight horses. Now, they don't do any bandages. They don't do any rubbing down afterwards. They just basically get them off the track, walk them for 15, 20 minutes, and put them in the stall and feed them and clean their stalls. And then usually it's it's about one exercise rider uh, roughly per eight horses. Um, I kind of pick my number of horses depending on the training hours. Uh, I'll, I'll let my exercise riders get more so they can make a little bit more money. And so my guy will actually get 10 to 12 if the time is, is doable on the racetrack. And so as long as the, the training hours are long enough, then I'll have an uh, exercise rider get 10 to 12, and that way it allows him to have a little larger paycheck. And really the, the, the number of horses that an exercise rider gets is dependent on the time on the track. Uh, but now some of them, you know, they would get, uh, you know, kind of a little high on themselves. They only want to get six or seven a day. And for some of the big outfits, they'll let them do that. if They're, you know, if they're top-quality riders. And so they usually get, I usually have, you know, say if, uh, if I have a barn of 20 horses, I usually have four grooms, four hot walkers, two exercise riders, and then my assistant is how how my employee uh, uh, employees stack up.
0: Great. Tell uh, tell me a little bit about, like, a, a horse's routine during the week. Like, uh, the training schedule you set, uh, you know, I know all horses are different. I know trainers tailor their schedule to, you know, uh, to the horse but tell me about uh, you know again a typical horse's week um uh in terms of how you set up their training schedule
1: now if, if, if my horse is is um doing well and has no issues uh he's eating up well his legs look good he's handling the training he's not losing weight over training um so you you just so, so let's get a baseline on physical condition he's he's handling training well normal a normal week for him for that horse either he or she would be uh, he gallops a mile the first day that we go. He'll gallop a mile the second day we go. He'll gallop two miles the next day. On the fourth day, he'll gallop a mile. On the fifth day, he'll gallop a mile. And then we'll actually give him what's a breeze uh, or a workout. And what's that considered? is like when you say if, if anybody's familiar with lifting weights, when you go out and you're lifting weights on a daily basis and you go to the, the, the say, on a Friday, you max out to see how how strong you've gotten. It's about 80 to 90% of your ability. That's what a breeze for a horse. And so then what we'll do is we'll let them stretch their legs out and see where we are with their fitness, where we are with their, you know, if you have an equipment change that we're trying, and see where they are and how happy they are with their training. And so we're going to time them in that workout. Now, after they work out, after they breeze, we'll usually walk them a day. Some trainers will jog them the very next day just to see if there's any change uh, in their gait from the breeze, if something happened, if there's an injury or if there's something coming on. Uh, but we'll walk them one day and we get more out of walking the day and checking their, their ligaments and their joints the day after. So then after they walk them one day, we'll go back to the track the next day and we'll jog them a mile. And then we'll go back to their regular galloping program, what I just went through. Uh, the only difference really you'll see in a horse that's doing really well is when we race a horse, we'll usually walk them three to four days after that. So instead of the one day of walking after a breeze, we'll give them three to four days after, a, after a race to, to let them, uh, you know, get back in their feed tub and then get back to their normal um, operating level. So that's, that's barely the only difference. Now, you know, that's, that's very, very basic. So some, some, especially will deal with fillies sometimes that can't handle the training And so we'll back off and jog. And if you train too hard, they'll start losing weight. They'll back out of their feed tub and they'll get a little bit more temperamental. So we'll back off and we'll just jog them more and uh, just breeze them every five or six days, seven days beyond the jogging. You know, and we won't even get them into a stronger gallop. Uh, and some of the colts that are that are have more energy we'll pick that pace up a little bit and we change that kind of the the how fast they gallop or how much they jog depending on on you know what physical issues they have or or what you know behavioral issues they have so that kind of changes is how we progress through the through the training schedule
0: do uh is there is there a difference uh in terms of the the type of horse and the routine you might have like whether it's a a turf or dirt horse or a sprint or route horse and to the extent that you jog versus gallop or are you pretty much any sort of sound horse that you have that can take it you'll be galloping
1: no it, well that really i base that more based on the speed of my gallops on, on the horses so turf horses to me needed to be a little bit more fit on the dirt they usually don't get as much out of the dirt as they would off a turf course so when they're running so you really want that turf horse to be fit and and it's not necessarily between the balance between jogging and galloping, but when your pace of your gallops are usually stronger, and you're looking to the, the finish in the gallop very strong uh, towards the end. So you may start off slower and gallop two miles, and that second mile you're letting them pick it up and you're letting them get, you know a strong gallop. So turfers, I usually let them gallop a little bit more. Um, uh, sprinters, usually a little bit less, so they're slower. And they'll still gallop normally, but I'll, I'll gallop them real slow, so we'll tuck them up make them pull a little bit more and get it more on the muscle so they're ready to come out of that gate they're ready to to run right away Um, and and you'll see this with a lot of horses is if you if you take a horse say that is um really rank and wants to run off with the rider and give you know 110 percent for the first half mile and then he flattens out so if we take a horse like that and we let him do longer gallops and work on more of, of his stamina versus his speed, then we can kind of take some of that speed out of him and that can easily calm him down and get him to carry that speed a little bit further and he won't be so aggressive. Uh, conversely, if you have a horse that, you know, is real slow out of the gate and takes a long time to warm up and then comes flying at the end, we'll usually do shorter, quicker works, trying to get him to pump up those quick muscle fibers and get him to pop out of that gate a little bit quicker. So it's not necessarily turf or dirt. It's more about their running style would really change up the way we train them and the speed and the, and, the, and the frequency with what we gallop or how we gallop them.
0: Now, what are you looking for in a workout? What do you watch in a workout? Um, uh, you know, I know that those are the sort of the, the, the real things that trainers pay attention to. What, what uh, What's your ideal work, workout? And, and uh, again, tell me uh, how you evaluate them.
1: We normally do um, – the workouts for me are a little bit different, I think, than a lot of people. A lot of people are worried really about the, the final time. Um, most of my works are tend to be on the slower side, uh, because I don't think the horse needs to stress itself out as much, you know, until he's running. And so I'm trying to protect their joints and their ligaments and that so forth. And I don't want to be the back out of that feed tub. But what, what I do more is what's called the gallop out. And so I'll get a lot of my fitness after the work. And so I let the horse go on. Say if I'm working a half mile, he might go out three quarters of a mile or seven eighths of a mile after the work galloping strong. And that just kind of keeps him, just like just like uh, if you see a kid out there running out in, in the field or in a, in a in a football field or whatever, and you know he's kind of just on a long, easy stride, I and mean, he's not stressing himself. It's just kind of easy for him to do, but it's still getting his heart pumping. It's still stretching out his ligaments, his muscles. That's kind of where we work with our workers. So it, my ideal workouts are usually they start slower. Uh, if you would take an average eighth of a mile, it's normally around twelve seconds. Um, so if you go f- uh, half a mile, which is four furlongs, four eighths of a mile, half a mile is, is, uh, 48 seconds. Somewhere between 48 and 49 is what I like to see, but I like to see, I like to see them start off slower and finish up stronger. So they might start the first eighth and 13, and then I want to see the last eighth and 11 and three, you know, 11 and two, 11 and three, 11 and four, somewhere in there. And then I want to see the gallop out, like so in 13 seconds, three, eighth after that. Uh, when I know they can do that for, you know, 13 seconds, 13 seconds, 13 seconds, the next three eighths after the half mile, I know we are kind of fit to whatever we need to do. When a horse works and it goes in 48 and the next eighth is 15, I know we're in trouble. So I got to look to see if there's something bothering him, if he's just unfit, if, you know, if we need to work more uh, or something bothering me. And he's he's kind of backing off the breeze for a physical reason. So my works usually start off around 13. I want to finish him up in 11 and change. And then I want to see that strong gal pot afterwards.
0: Well, along the lines of sort of working out a horse and, and getting them ready for races, tell me a little bit about like the spacing of races and in your thoughts as a trainer. I know this is something that's just vastly changed over time. You know, I was looking at uh looking at some of the old uh looking up your, your, your dad's stats and looking up at some of these old horses. I mean Ali Sheba ran in the Kentucky Derby, won the Kentucky Derby, um, off a prep race nine days earlier. Right? And so uh you yeah. know horses used to race every week or every two weeks and now uh, there's much more spacing, so tell me about. Like, he was
1: disqualified. Disqualified nine days earlier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it crossed the wire first <laughs> in
0: the blue. I mean, they used to run the blue yeah. nine days before the Derby. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, tell me about you know your ideal spacing uh, and kind of what you try to do with with spacing both races and workouts and 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 why you think uh, you know there's been this uh, this evolution to the extent that just horses race a lot less than they used to. You know I.
1: I've heard, and I don't know this to be the case, that the breeding is, is weak in the horse and they're not as sound and not as durable as they used to be. I don't know quite if that's the case. I know that the thoroughbred the breed, breed is, is kind of bred more towards speed and with speed comes unsoundness. sometimes. Um, they run faster, they run harder. Uh, not as much turf, more dirt, and that's all been based on kind of the sales. People want horses to get to the races quickly and run fast quickly, so they, they breed them to be fast early. But Back in the day, you used to you used to run every race that was available for that individual. Now there's so much money out there that that if you don't want to run, say like you know Brad Cox with the horse of your your Nick's go, if you don't want to face him in a million dollar race, you can go down the road and there would be another race for five hundred or seven hundred fifty thousand, and you don't you can dodge him. Okay, back in the day you couldn't do that really. There was about one race every three weeks somewhere in the country that you had to run in if you wanted if you're a top handicap horse. Um, and then what happened was there was two groups came out, the thorough graph sheets and the ragazin sheets and they're a handicapping tool. And Bobby Frank was on the front end of this. And what he found out, they came up with this theory about a bounce theory and the bounce meant that if you ran a really fast number, really fast race and you came back too quickly, what happened with the horse was bounce and he wouldn't do as good. The bounce meant he would, we would bounce off his good performance and come back with a bad performance. So back in the day, Frankel really started it. And then you saw Pletcher, Todd Pletcher do it as well. Some of the bigger trainers, And what they figured out is you could erase that bounce if you gave them time, and so then you start seeing these guys run horses every 30 days. You know, back back you know in the 70s and 80s when I was running, you'd run back in two weeks, and that was relatively normal. Uh, Three weeks was kind of long. A month was really long between races. Um, You know, I've even seen horses where Dad had a horse in on a Friday and he ran third uh, at Oaklawn, and he came back the next day, Saturday, and ran and set a track record. Um, And then you know back-to-back days. And I've seen a horse of King Leatherberry back in, I think it was the 90s, early 90s. He ran on Friday at a track in Maryland. I can't remember if it was Laurel or Pimlico, which one. But then he was entered in at Penn National that night, and they wouldn't let him scratch. And so he put him on a van and ran him the same day. Ran him two times the same day. Back. I mean, it's, it's very different. I think it's just the philosophy of, of the trainer and when, when the horses are getting to be so valuable and you have a really top horse if you throw in a bad performance and it's blamed on coming back too quickly, I think you're getting a, a big ding on your resume. And so a lot of people don't want to try to get that ding. And so they're trying to make sure these horses are, are ready. So it might be four weeks. It might be six weeks. It might be eight weeks. Um, you're, you're, you're seeing a lot more time spread out between races and, and taking care of these horses and, and trying to keep them in, in the best physical condition you can without, without pushing them too hard.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a different mentality. I mean, Ali Sheba, Again, one of the all-time greats lost fifteen times, right? And it's 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 nowadays, uh, you know, we look for perfection, and a horse loses once or twice, and it, their reputation is somewhat tarnished, and they and they head to the breeding shed. So it's not, you know, I don't know whether it's a, just a sporting change or the way we de- we sort of evaluate uh, our champions is, has changed that uh, the way that we um, we sort of look at uh, look at performance. So that's that's certainly part of it as as well.
1: Um, you know, yeah, I always look at, like, say, like, in the mission. How many times did he run? Six times? Yeah, I'm not sure, I but, think it, maybe but it, wasn't, six. it wasn't much. I think in the mission, one of the greatest stallions of our time right now, probably. You could argue he's one of the top five, I guess. But could you imagine only running six times and saying, "Let's this horse breed, because he sees, you know, whether he didn't wasn't sound or because they wanted to preserve a perfect record? Or would you rather have a horse run as a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, and for $6 million, even though it gets beat, you know, Twelve times or whatever, but he's also won eighteen races, you know, and shown his is you know stamina and durability over a, a prolonged period. So that is a tough question to, to figure out anymore, you know, is what, what's a better angle?
0: Well, it, it was very notable, like when in the nineteen eighties, the breed changer Danzig, right? Uh, you know, he only raced I think twice or three times for Woody Stevens, and so uh, three times, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that uh, again, those things would have been when more heard of, but again, like in the mischief you know first year it stud stood for 7500 right so that's uh you know also a way that the game has changed um how do you decide if yeah. a horse you know uh, uh, a horse physically based on his physical appearance i guess uh or maybe pedigree um wants to you know route or sprint or turf or dirt uh you know how do you sort of make that decision is there are there different uh... characteristics about those horses
1: yeah, uh, yeah, definitely the stride I, I see in the way the horse is built. So, you, your horses with a longer back. Um, so, if you're if you're going from their elbow, which is just underneath their front legs, back to their loin, you know, just in front of the back legs, that whole kind of area above it is their back. Okay, so usually longer backed horses tend to do well better on turf. Um, and it, and I, I've never figured out really. I've never got down to the, the the nuts and bolts of it, whether it's a, a physical issue, because they're tougher usually to keep sound. And so turf is easier on them. And so the, I think people tend to put them on turf to keep them sound. Uh, and I don't necessarily know if that's a trait that makes them better on turf or it's just that's the way their body is. So it's it makes it uh, a better racing career, a longer racing career. But the longer back horses usually are better on turf. The shorter compact horses uh, and wider through the, the, the chest and the rear are usually better sprinters. Um, And then, then I base it on stride. A, a lot is, is how they look on the track, how they travel. You know, the, there's some horses that just skip along, that that look, you know, that stretch out in the turf. And there's some horses that have real high knee action that are on turf. But it's basically how their stride, how efficient their stride is on dirt, usually makes me question whether a surface change is needed or not. And and what I mean by that is, is you may have a horse. A great example of a horse that I had was, uh, I mean, I thought this horse was a, a steak horse. If you, if you take a hold of him on the work and you kept him well within himself and let him work, he would breeze 47 and change and look like a million dollars. Now, as soon as you put him in the race in the dirt and you asked him to go after you went the 47 and change, he would have stayed the same speed. He wouldn't accelerate. And what it was is just his, you know, whether it be his foot, you know, the the, the foot style that he had, whether it's, you know, not as concave or it's not as flat or too flat, you know, depending on what you're looking for. He just wouldn't accelerate on the dirt, and so what it what it indicated to me is that he wasn't getting hold of it, and we needed to change. And so we switched him on the turf, and, we, and immediately we switched him on the turf. He was ten lengths better. And so a lot of it is is the horse tells me what what they want, and and that's again spending time with them. Um, but then you go also to look at. So you're talking about distance and and pedigree, uh, and, and surface. And I'll look for what their mother did, whether whether the mother was a turf or whether the mother was dirt, whether synthetic track you know short long and their father what their father did and then i'll kind of i use that more so based for my distance preferences whether i horse, stretch a horse out or not than i do for surface as much um and i let their their action their body style usually tell me the surface and so with those two things combinations i'll usually kind of figure out kind of dial in where we're trying to accomplish
0: what about running styles are horses born Front runners, stalkers, and closers? Or is that something I've noticed that they're certainly different trainers and they have different techniques? Chad Brown on turf always seem to be late closers. Uh, you know, Pletcher and, and Brad Cox, their horses always are on or near the lead. Uh, so so tell me, you know, so I know training is a big part of it, but tell me a little bit about running styles and, and kind of how you manage that.
1: I think running style, yeah, it's it definitely like, you know, just like a human. So you have your quick twitch fibers and you have slow twitch fibers. Okay, slow-twitch fibers are, are endurance runners, are cross-country, you know, long-distance marathon type. The quick-twitch are sprinters, hurdlers, you know, short, fast distances. Um, and so horses are the same thing. They, they're, you know, they're built up just like humans are, so they have the different types of muscles. So they're going to tell you pretty early kind of what their qualities are as far as is a racing horse. Um, now, the, the difference with, and it could be in humans, I guess, as well, but the difference with horses is, then you, then you have to deal with the mental side of it. And that's where a lot of horses struggle. And so there's a horse that might think he needs to go all out out of the gate, and you can't teach him to slow down and take his time. He doesn't need to go as fast. Just like, you know, if you see, see a cross-country race where a guy goes out there and runs real fast splits early and he has no, no finish in the end. Horses are the same way. And so you can kind of train that out of them sometimes or, or tailor their mindset to the racing. And some of them will develop over time as well to mature. But more often than not, you're kind of kind of getting what you have to start with, and you just gotta you kind of kind of tailor it to as best you can to what you're shooting your your race for. And so, horses that typically want to go fast may not be able to run long if they can't if they can't you know slow that pace down and slow their mind down. Uh, and the horses that come from behind may physically just not be able to get warmed up quick enough out of the gate. It takes them a while to get going. To, to you know that's why they're closers. And so there's physical things as well as mental things that cause horses to do that. And in the morning, that's what we work on. So we're trying to change behaviors or tendencies in the horse that are negative contributors to their performance. And so that you know, there's different ways of doing that. Whether you're you're going faster in the morning and going further, or going slower in the morning and try to speed them up. Whether you put blinkers on to try to put more speed into them early if they're not paying attention, you want them to focus coming out of the gate. Um, so there's different ways with either either training equipment um you know or, or you work out of the gate or in the gate as itself to kind of teach a horse to, to either speed up or relax coming out of that gate and whether we can push him further in distance he or she in distance or if we need to keep them sprinting so there is definitely things you you would change um based on what they're you know the, the feedback they're giving you it's what you need to do to optimize their performances uh,
0: let's talk a little bit about equipment uh, that uh, that uh, you hear Again, trainers use and they talk a lot about. First of all, blinkers. Tell me a little bit about blinkers, what they do, and and when your decision would be to put them on or take them off.
1: Blinkers are basically uh, a type of aggressive behavior equipment. So, and what I mean by that is, is when you all you can see is you know horses can see just a little everywhere, but just a little bit behind, directly behind them, and just a little bit directly in front of them. I think they somewhere they have around, oh, I I, I remember seeing it. They only have about 20 20 degrees in front of them, maybe 20 degrees behind them. They can't see. So horses have a wide range of vision. Uh, The only area they can really see kind of in depth, and it's still not great, is about 20 degrees on either side of, of dead center in front of them. Okay, so basically all they can see in depth is in front of them, basically. On the side, it's one eye. On the other side, so it's one eye. And so what you're doing is a, a horse has a tendency to get distracted by something and it's filled of vision on the side, is peripheral vision, is you're trying to stop them from being, you know, distracted by it. So a horse may see another horse next to him, but he doesn't know if that horse is two feet away or four feet away, but he sees it moving over there. That bothers him. So he either tries to duck away from it or he backs away from it. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to get that focus of the blinkers and that closes that eye, the, the, the field of vision up. And so all they can see basically is in front of them. So you're try, trying to stop seeing either things behind them, you know, in their core hind or on the side of them. And we're looking down for you know going forward. Um, some of the horses just have a tendency to get distracted. And so, you know, they may run a little bit and then they kind of slow up a little bit and then they'll run again and they'll run in spots. That's so what you're trying to do, is you get in the focus of everything going forward instead of saying, you know, hey, this is okay, this horse comes up side, you slow down, let him by, then we start running again. That's so what you're trying to do with the blinkers, you're trying to get that horse kind of focus and take away a lot of the distraction that, that might be hampering it, its performance. And so blinkers are our main way. You'll see a lot of guys use them early, which, you know, it's it, it. I really struggle with because now in, in modern racing, you know, there's so many statistics out there that are available, and it's the, the access to statistics is way better than it ever used to be. And to me, it, it's very important to let a horse develop naturally to get the best out of it. And a lot of these guys that you see, they're good two-year-old trainers and then win early and often the earliest two-year-olds is they put these blinkers on right away and all they're doing is training to go as fast and as, as far as possible, as early as possible. And I don't really think that's develop a horse in, in its best interest for the long term. You know, there's some that, that probably need that early, but for the majority of them not, they need to learn, you know, what racing is before you start throwing equipment on them and saying, hey, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to force you into this behavior instead of, of letting you develop and see what you so what you prefer. And uh, so blinkers are, are probably your your most... Uh, used or overused, I think equipment that there can be, and a great angle and handicap and angle. I love is Taking horses that are the you know, early and in races, they're bred no longer and just uh, job of out. And you see the horses start to life like that, and it changes their, their running style, their running habits, and they'll uh, carry their speed a lot further than the if they would slow.
0: Yeah, so you 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 put the blinkers on to get them to concentrate more and focus more, and you take them off, um, uh, to uh, you know, get them to be again more aware of surroundings to to lay off a little bit, and uh, um, uh, you know, typically with older horses, I guess uh, uh, you know, taking their blinkers off can often wake them up. I guess it was Ali Sheba, right, who uh, had that blinkers off four-year-old uh, horse of the year campaign. right? 100%. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it basically,
1: was it doesn't really anything to do with racing strategy, but what he would do is he'd wait on horses. He'd never win. If you ever watched Dally Sheba's race, he would never win by much. It was a nose, a head, a half lung, a neck, The horse swag. Everybody's like, well, you know, he's, he's a good horse, but he's not a great horse. It didn't matter him. All he knew was how to win. And so he would get up just in time, you'd see some of those races and the races, good things else horses never gonna get up there and then you know, fifty feet, a hundred feet of the wire, he puts his head in front and he won't let the other horse back by. So what happened is that his dad, when he was, when he was training, he was like, you know, this horse is weighting horses too much, so he didn't get beat. And so what he did, he said, I want him to see those horses on his hindquarters, and so he pulled the bunkers off. You know, so the dog, he was never about to run it to the back. It was more of a, a, of a, a final 16th of a mile issue where he was want the horse to see the other horse side by side, and that would make him compete in more, because he was more competitive. He knew when the horse was there, and he knew what he was competing against, he, it, would, it would make him run better.
0: So another equipment that, uh, you know, is in the racing form and that you hear a lot about, and, and I, I've never really figured out whether there, it was worthwhile information or not, are front wraps. When front wraps go off, when front wraps come on, mainly when front wraps are going on. And I know it's, a, at least I've perceived it as a big negative for horses that are putting on front wraps all the time. And yet I know some trainers always race in certain circumstances uh, with their horses wearing front wraps. So tell me a little bit about front wraps and the decision of horses to um of trainers to put front wraps on their horses
1: yeah typically front wraps when you say front wraps it usually means a bandage of some sort uh you know back in the day it used to be old ace elastic bandage if you ever were a kid and had the the orange tan colored elastic bandage you wrap around your ankle you sprained it or whatever with the the little teeth in it that would bite on either side and keep it taut you tuck it in you know into itself so those used to be that's all you had and then you know Around 30 years ago, they came up with this uh, synthetic uh, 3M, which is an Elasticon bandage where it's a a synthetic fiber that that sticks to itself, a synthetic material that sticks to itself. So, mostly what is wrapped is basically, in the old days, was a a form of support. So, if a horse had ankles, issues with their ankle joints, um, or maybe a suspensory or something of that sort, they would put bandage on to give it support. So, it's just like an athlete with an an ankle wrap. uh, If you have a sprained ankle and you're nursing nurse and it needs more support. So, that's really where the rap started. Um, today, there's a lot of different reasons for them. So on these tracks and the horse get faster and the, the tracks get, you know, sloppier and grittier. If a horse has sometimes, let say, a longer pasturn, uh and a, a more angle to its pastern, sometimes they'll they'll hit down harder on the bottom of their ankle. So if you think of, say, your base of your palm of your hand, if, you, if you're if you kind know, of, if you're on uh, all fours, you're crawling across the ground and that base that palm pounds down on the ground, Okay, that's what the bottom of the ankle, the sesamoid part of the ankle will do on horses when they hit the ground It'll it'll hit to the bottom of the ground. And they'll either, you know, get abrasions, abrasions on there and they'll get raw and they'll get red and they'll bleed, get infected or get sore. Or they'll just pound that, that sesamoid bone, you know, and it, it gets sore over time and you have a better chance to get a fracture. So some horses, depending on the way they're built, they may, they may wear bands their whole life just for protection. Or if they get a poor track surface or a grittier track surface they may put them on to perfect, protect that horse based on the way he's built. More often than not, though, you'll see horses that have, when you see that, like you're talking about that angle about wraps on, first front bands on, usually it's probably because they're trying to give support to an ankle issue, whether it has an arthritic ankle or a degenerative condition in the in the bone in the ankle, and the joint of the ankle, or some kind of suspensory soft tissue stuff. Sometimes people abandon that. Um, you know, there's the, there's some interesting studies coming out of the UK right now that are actually saying that, that bandages will raise the temperature of the cells in the leg and uh, can cause a breakdown in the soft tissue. And so it's interesting to see, I've never seen it. We've been a heavy bandage uh, barn my whole life, my grandfather, my father. And for me, it's always been support and protection. And there's different types of trainers. So if you get the blue bloods, you know, kind of what the Dwayne Lucas was of the 80s and 90s. The Baffert was of the 90s and 2000s. Uh, the Shug McGahee of the 90s and 2000s. You know, those guys have these, you know, million-dollar pedigree horses, and so you're protecting those. My father and my grandfather, especially my grandfather, owned all, the, almost all of the horses that he trained. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, 500, 600, 700 starts a year with horses that you train, and they're usually on the lower end, you have to keep them together and you have to keep the sound. And so a lot of the bandaging was basically support. And I've never seen bandaging ever create an issue with the leg, negative. Now, science may say different, but usually it's, to me, it's kept the horse going longer and kept them sounder and kept him happier, more comfortable, you know, on down the list. It's kept that ankle or the leg much happier, you know, and in and, and better condition over the longer period than they have you don't bandage it. Um, so I, I have a trouble with, with seeing that science. Now, if it shows me and I start seeing issues with them, you know, with the change in thrift or whatever, but I'm a big bandage fan. Uh, I usually do it more for protection than I do, uh, you know, to, to try to, to hide something. But, you know, you'll get now guys in claiming races. They're, the the, the claiming game has become so competitive that they'll put bandages on just because they want other trainers to think there's an issue and they, they want to see bandages on. So then maybe won't claim their horse. So, I mean, there's all kinds of trickery you could do to, to, to deceive other other horsemen from trying to claim your horse off you or buy your horse off you, but that's a whole other category. But I've always been a big bandage fan. I don't think whether you have a bandage on or not indicates how sound a horse or how good are you doing. Um, so I'm you know handicapping wise, I think it's a different story. I think you need to follow each individual trainer and see what their pattern or their history is. You know, like you say, some some run a lot of bandages all the time. I mean, you look at you know Diodoro, Maquette, Ask Newsom, all the really like hind bandage all the time. Rarely do you see a front bandage on on those guys. You know, uh, Deodore, I say would, would say more often than not you see more than, than the rest of those guys. But um, you know, it's 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 a tricky tricky subject when you talk about handicapping based on wraps because there, there could be various reasons why they're using a wrap.
0: What about shoes? And I know they don't have anything on shoes in the forum, but I, you know when you hear, for example, first time bar shoe or something, or, or you know horse wearing a bar shoe or something like that—is that is there, are those things to be alarmed about? And then you know, like uh, um, you know, different shoeing in mud. I, you know, you hear sometimes uh, uh, you know horses will wear, I guess, mud stickers or, or, or something like that in mud. Uh, tell me a little bit about the shoeing of the of the stuff that's sort of. Made public. I know, you know, horses with bad feet will wear glue-ons, but that's they never announce glue-ons. For example,
1: yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the horse. So this, this is probably, if if you're looking to to find an issue with the horse, usually the first place you start is the foot. And so, to me, shoeing is extremely important. It's probably the most important thing actually in, in all of horse care is that you have adequate foot care. Now, the different types of shoes are based on necessity, based on what's going on with the foot. So when you're talking about a bar shoe, you're talking about usually um, what they'll have is they'll either have a compromised uh, rear portion of their sole, or what's uh, possibly a quarter crack, which means it's a crack running vertically down from the the coronet band, which is the, the edge of the fur or the hair, I should say, coming out of the foot where it goes into the into the hook itself, and it will crack there. Just like you have an, a, a crack in your cuticle, say on your your. Some and you know when it opens up and closes up in cold weather whatever it hurts. Same thing happens with horses. And the more that crack moves, the more it opens up, the bigger it gets. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to with a bar shoe, <clears throat> you're trying to stabilize that crack from from opening up. So when you see a bar shoe, usually, <clears throat> excuse me, the horse is dealing with some kind of issue on that foot. Now whether the bar shoe is causing a difference in performance or the the underlying problem is causing a difference in performance, that's. Could be argumentative, but I think each horse is an individual, you know, story. So you have to figure out what's going on with the horse. I do think the bar shoe is tougher to run on surfaces if you have that on versus a normal uh, racing plate. I just don't think you get the same type of traction you do, and the same type of grip you do on a bar shoe. So it's like if you had a, uh, basically, if you're running on a, a, a tennis shoe, and the guy next to you is running with some sort of cleat on on a grass field. More often than not, that guy's going to get better traction with the cleat than you are with your tennis shoe. So it's kind of the same one they deal with the bar shoe. Bar shoe tends to make that horse sole flatter, and, and you don't have the, the cup uh, you know, in the, in the foot that kind of gets of that dirt like you would with a regular shoe. Um, so those are things. The stickers, you don't see quite as much anymore. Most tracks almost have outlawed them. But back in the day was a big thing is they're called stickers or jar cocks. Um, and like Alan Jerk and some of those guys, the, the giant killer up in Saratoga, when you get those deeper tracks or, or Belmont, you get the deeper tracks that are real sandy. Some guys would actually put those on during fast tracks and those deeper tracks on the front feet as well. And so you see these horses have these huge jumps and performances, and it was basically just based on the shoeing. is the horse to actually get a hold of that track and it would have a, it basically had like cleats on versus a non-cleated horse. Um, now the tracks are usually so fast and so hard that you really don't want any kind of aggressive shoe. Type of cleat on there, so the toe grabs, which are the little raised edge in the front of the, ho- the front of the shoe, you really don't even get those on the front end anymore. Most most tracks are disallowing those because they thought they they increased breakdowns. Um, so you really don't even get those on most tracks anymore. So the only thing you really can do much of a change as far as that is is hind shoes. You can put a little bit of a, a toe grab on it, and you can kind of bend the back end down. And when you bend that back in the shoe, and the last portion of the shoe down. It kind of gives that horse a little more traction. Okay. So the, the thing about it's kind of hard to understand with horses is when a horse's foot hits the ground, it actually hits and slides and it's, it's imperceivable to us when we watch it with the naked eye. But when you put some of those things on, and the horse's foot sticks and it doesn't slide that can lead to injuries. And so it's hard to, to figure out what you want to do is, is if a track is deeper and looser, and you, even though you have some of those bends on or some of those toe grabs on, and, and that foot will still hit and slide, then you're okay. If you have a track that'll sit there, and like a, a synthetic tracks, especially, where that foot will hit and stick, you start getting issues with, with jamming their back ends up, and they start getting issues behind, tibular stress factors, stuff like that. And so you really have to find out what purpose that shoe is going to serve, and is there any negative issues you might arise by putting it on? So when you're looking for handicapping, it's really tough. But you may notice, uh, you know, for us, the, the the big thing for me is to see in the morning if I if I change a shoe, do I see a change in the action that the horse is is traveling, how he's traveling, and that's where I can find out if I'm making a positive or a negative change. So when you when you're just looking at on a race day, it's kind of tough to to figure out. You don't you have enough background information on on that horse, that particular foot, or that particular shoe. To understand what they're doing, or what if it's going to work or it's not going to work. So uh, there are are things you can do to change a shoot and a foot to make it perform better, but it takes time and 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 day, after day of watching it to see if you're if you're making a positive or negative change to it.
0: Any other sort of equipment that 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 catches your interest when you see it on a horse, or that that you like to use, that maybe others don't don't.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, the the biggest thing uh, you, you see is you know a couple of the the, the more uh successful trainers right now or or you see in, in the Midwest basically and in some across the East Coast too is and a little bit of the West Coast is is you'll, you'll see what's called the rubber figure eight. And that's that's a, a rubber band that does a figure eight loop around the horse's muzzle. And what that does is, is keeps the, the mouth closed. So horses are nose breathers. And when you have your mouth open and you're running it actually it presses your nostrils, the horse's nostrils, and it doesn't allow the airflow to go through as easily. And so if a horse, you see a horse is running with its mouth wide open and is trying to run, you know, basically run off or try to get away from the rider as quickly as he can, you want to kind of close that mouth back down so it can be more efficient breathing through its nostrils. So Askewson, he was the one that started what's called the rubber figure eight. Um, it's a little bit less uh, restrictive than a regular typical uh, nylon or leather figure eight that clamps down. and You, 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 you cinch it up just like a belt. This one kind of flexes a little bit, so it's a little bit less aggressive to a horse, and so he's he's kind of been almost synonymous with the rubber figure eight. And then <laughs> Diodoro, Robertino Diodoro, started basically taking the rubber figure eight, and then he put what's called the flare strip. And basically, a flare strip is like one of those nasal strips you put on a, on our nose. Um, and basically, what it does is it holds the nostrils open. And so, in holding the nostrils open, what happens is when horses, what's called EIPH. Exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhaging, so that's bleeding. If you ever heard, and so there's a big controversy now going on with lasix or no lasix in horses. and Lasix is a diuretic, helps the horses uh, basically stop bleeding. It's it's kind of like uh, you know a medication. Say if you give insulin to a diabetic, it helps them out. Lasix is a very positive thing for horses, but it's also been associated with performance enhancement until so people have that. So. What they've done is a study that if you, the reason horses bleed, the first contributor basically to horses bleeding is the negative air pressure that is created when a horse accelerates. And so what that means is when they try to get all this air sucked into their, into their lungs, they can't do it because the the nostrils collapse. Okay. The the soft tissue around the nostrils collapses down when they're breathing in. And so what they found out and studies have shown that if you can keep those nostrils open with one of these strips, it reduces the incidence of uh, EIPAs or bleeding. And so Diodoro's taking that pretty much on every horse and putting the, the rubber nose band, the rubber figure eight that De- uh, that Askewson has used, almost everything he has, and then puts the flare strip on top of it. And basically what he's doing is he says, I'm going to try to increase, kind of think of almost like a turbocharger on a car. I want to increase the airflow into my horse, and it's going to make the machine perform better. Okay, that's basically what you're doing the rubber figure eight kind of keeps the mouth closed. So it's not interfering with the breathing as well. So basically now we're, we're, we're streamlining the airflow into the, into the machine or the animal. And now we're also creating a, a, a bigger pathway for the air to go into the animal. So those two things I think are, are, are pretty positive. Um, and then you also do what's called a tongue tie. And that keeps the tongue down. And what happens is is a horse sometimes will uh, basically flip the tongue in their back of their mouth and they'll have their soft palate and soft palate. Basically uh, it, Tells the horse whether the air's going in or food or water's going in. And what happens is sometimes when they flip that soft palate, they'll basically flip the, the palate that blocks the airway temporarily. And so it'll be acting like it's going to get water or, or food in, but they're not getting their breath. And so they'll basically, it's almost have to hold their breath while they're running. And so if you put a tongue tie on, basically, it'll stop some of those horses from getting that tongue back there when they can flip that palate and they'll keep it from, from displacing and, and causing an air issue. So those three things I think are probably. More often than not, the the three things that I think, if if you're just trying to tweak and optimize your your animal at the very top level, I think those three things are probably going to be doing more than than most other things you see.
0: Well, that was good. It segued me into both bleeding and, and throats. And those are, you know, a couple things that just in reading a form when a horse throws up a bad race, you know, there may be. You know, it may be the way the race is run. It may be the horse had an off day, but often there's something going on that we can't see in the form. Maybe the horse bled, bled through Lasix. Uh, maybe the horse has a throat issue um, or the throat is starting to go bad. So tell me a little bit about sort of those and how you manage that uh, as a uh, as a trainer. I know, again, uh, you know, I always hear from my trainers about, uh, you know, concerns about a throat. And, uh, uh, and I know that uh, slows them down pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, throat throat issues are probably the the largest performance declining issue that you'll have in a horse um, that is almost irreparable, um, depending on what they do. Now, there's varying degrees of throat issues, and when I say there's varying degrees, so, so we talked about a horse that's displacing. A horse that's displacing is usually based on nerves, okay, and if you can quiet that horse down and calm that horse down, sometimes you can get him to stop doing it. He or she stopped doing it. if you get them to change the way their race runs, sometimes you get them to stop doing it and what I say that is some horses won't like it when they're on the inside of a bunch of other horses and they're running hard as they can head to head from the from the gate to the wire, and they'll get nervous and they'll kind of basically flip that pallet and, and stop their breathing and it's kind of the way to give themselves an exit out of that competition uh, and you take that same horse and you let him get on the outside and and nobody's on his outside he's galloping just as free as he wants to be and and not being pressured, that horse may not displace in that race. So sometimes those performance lines you're seeing is, is the way the race set up and that horse might have an issue with these displacing and, and causing air issues during that particular race. And it may change from race to race depending on how the race is run or what type of race it is. Um, then you get into other things. with, with the, There's two uh, flaps that hang down in the throat. You can kind of see it in the back of our throats as well, but those two flaps that hang down. And when the horse breathes in, those flaps will fold back um and what happens though is sometimes when those horses and you see it sometimes it's, it's pedigree based sometimes the stallions will throw these but i typically see it in a lot of horses that grow fast and are very large animals um and they, and they grow too fast what happens is one of those flaps will stay paralyzed become paralyzed and it will stay closed basically so basically you're only when they breathe in you're only open half a half flap uh, and one of the flaps, it's only half your airway is opening up. So you're restricting airflow there again. And that's where you get into issues with, with performance problems. Now, sometimes they can do surgery like you tie those flaps back and it stays back the whole time. Um, and some of those work, but uh, it's not always a, a huge success rate. So I would probably say you're, you're maybe 20% of those surgeries actually work. Uh, maybe 50% of them work to some degree, but not you're back to 100%. And then a lot of them will, you'll you'll do it, and they'll work for a little bit, and those things will start the the, the sutures will start loosening, and things will come back down a little bit, and it'll start impairing them again. So, airway problems are probably the biggest red flag. If I know a horse has an airway problem, I will I won't uh, push it, and the, the level of competition will decrease dramatically because of it.
0: And what about like other like soundness issues? Like I know you know again, there's soft tissue stuff, tendon suspensories. Which just take time to get over with, uh, uh, versus uh, you know, I guess bone chips where you can remove them and horses may come back, uh, you know, may come back hundred uh, uh, percent. You know, tell me a little bit about uh, again, sort of soundness and, and uh, you know,
1: certain certain sort
0: of injury management that uh, that a trainer has to do.
1: Yeah, the the, the probably the, the number one, on the top top of the charts if you if you don't want to get. Is probably the tendon issue, the soft tissue, tendon or suspensory, and the reason being is it's a lot harder to to heal up the the basically the fiber matrix that they normally have after an injury occurs. And and when when I say that is, what happens is when you injure and you you tear a hole or tear the ligaments or, or the fibers in in a, a suspensory or a tendon ligament, is the, when the fibers repair themselves, they rarely repair themselves in the same matrix that they were before, and so they're not as elastic. There's some scar tissue going on there. Um, you know, basically it's not the same tendon or ligament that was there prior to the injury. Now they've made some advancements in stem cell, uh, where they'll pull cells from the the horse and they'll take them to a lab and they'll spin them and they'll bring them back. And you can do, you know, five or four or five or six, uh, stem cell infusions in that area. And that, that ligament, that the fibers will get close to, to what it was previously, but it's still never really the same. And so when you, when you deal with those soft tissues, those are the toughest ones to manage going forward. And, and those are the ones when you get one of those, it, the quicker you stop on them, the quicker you address it, the better off you're gonna be. The larger that hole the larger the tear in that fiber is makes it more difficult as it heals. Uh and then the next one on the list of probably tough tough ones is lower knee joint issues. Uh whether it's a chip or a spur or even what's called the slab fracture, we take the front piece of that knee uh bone off. Um, those are those are probably the second most performance limiting issues or soundness issues going forward. When you get a lower knee joint on a horse, it, it makes it a lot tougher um, because that knee takes a lot more pounding than the upper part, upper joint in the knee. And so it, it's going to create more of an issue. So uh, I guess the best way to, to um, give, give an example for, for, for us would be if you took a little pebble and inserted it right between the, the two, you know, knee joints in your knee and then tried to run on it. And so what that's doing is every time you're sitting down that's hitting that cartilage hitting that joint between the two bones and it gets to be very painful. Well the the lower knee joint takes a lot more concussion than the upper knee joint. If they have a little you know, flake or something in the upper knee joint, that horse may never even know it. And and, and I might not know it on the outside that he has it. I, I've seen a lot of times where a horse will have, you know, you'll, you'll get a horse and runs really well, doesn't show any sign of heat inflammation, inflammation in any joint, and then somebody want to buy the horse, they'll come by and do a pre-purchase exam, like, they'll exit and they'll have some flakes in its upper joint. Never knew it. Never showed me. Never, never felt it. Never did anything uh, stride wise. And so, upper knee joints can handle a lot more than lower joints. And then, then you talk with ankles or hocks, uh, some of the backing stuff. The ankles, depending on where the chip is, where the damage is, where the arthritis is, uh, can affect how it does. I've seen horses with with a, a flake in an ankle for a long time, and it's not changing the you know the the look of the ankle. Um, so it's it's better really not to go in there and disturb that ankle joint and pull it out if it's not bothering the cartilage or the joint itself or the bone, um, and so you can deal with with some of those some of those little issues over longer periods of times without without hurting the horse or damaging the horse's joints, and so you really kind of have to be. I, I guess where I'm going is is the the vet, veterinary care that comes involved and in their their specialty and and in diagnosing diagnosing the uh, the animal the diagnostics of it. Each particular injury becomes very valuable because a lot of those can get by with, with you know a little bit of ice, a little anti-inflammatories, and that you wouldn't even know they had it for the most part. Um, And so we're just treating them outwardly as much as we can with whether we do, you know, bandaging on the ankle that has something going on, has inflammation in the joint, a fusion in the joint or if we are icing it, or doing laser on it, or doing MagnaWave, or whatever kind of, you know, extra therapy you can do, you can maintain some of those for a long, long time without having to go with the surgery or long layoff, and the horse is comfortable, and they're fine, and and for the most part, they're not doing any more damage to that ankle, or they're not knee, or or whatever you're dealing with, and as long as they're happy, and they're, they're sound on it, it, you know, they kind of, it's hard to understand, but sometimes, because animals, and they can't speak to you, but they really do, but animals are just like uh, you know. throwbirds are just like an NFL football player, a basketball player, an NCAA volleyball player, whatever it is. Is you're going to get when you do that kind of physical exertion, and especially with a you know a thousand pound, eleven 1, hundred pound, twelve hundred pound body on you know ankles that are no bigger than our ankles, um, you're going to get issues, whether it be uh, joint, you know, bone, skeletal, musculature. A ligament whatever it might be and basically what our deal is is as a trainer is we have to assess how it's affecting the horse and as long as it's not affecting the horse you you, you kind of you treat it just like you would a, a rehab an athlete and uh you give them the therapy and the anti-inflammatories and, and ice or whatever you might do and and as long as you're maintaining it and, and, and the horse is comfortable and happy, then, then they can go on for a while. So you really have to assess each individual injury, injury and see, you know, what the prognosis is. Some of those injuries are better to say, you know what, the horse is, is never going to be comfortable again. If we train on it from now on, even if we do surgery, there's going to be a lot of arthritis involved. Later on in life, the horse is not going to be comfortable. It's going to have a poor life after racing. And so some of those better be when you get that injury. It's just time to say, hey, you know what? let's find another home, we'll do the surgery, and we, we, you know, he might become a jumper or, you know, a riding horse or whatever he might do and find another discipline for the horse where he can't hold up to the the training rigors of thoroughbred racing.
0: So let's let's switch to the other end. Let's talk about unraced horses, two-year-olds. Like, what's the process uh, uh, for getting a two-year-old to the races? Uh, um, You know, I know that a lot of two-year-olds will go out to your trainer, uh, you know, sometime April, you know, anytime from April to late summer, and then you know, three to six months later they may make it to the races. Uh, what's the what's the routine with a two year old?
1: Yeah. The the funny thing is you see a lot of people now is they're saying that horses, you know, we need to stop start racing this three year old or start racing not till they're four because they're they're getting injured too often. And it's a big misnomer is actually horses benefit starting at two from training. As long as you're not doing too much training. And and what happens is the bone is still Modeling as a two-year-old, and so when you're getting the horse out there and jogging, galloping, and doing concussive work on the, that bone, is it's actually layering up more calcium and building that bone. And it's building it thicker and stronger. And so what happens over time is you're building you're building stronger bone. If you just let them go out there in a paddock or in a stall or walking or whatever, that horse is delaying all that maturing of the bone. And so two-year-old training to me is very important. It's just a matter of how you do it. And so each horse will tell you. Um, how they're ready to progress and a big thing for me on two-year-olds is what happens is two-year-olds is you'll get horses that are very different in their developmental stages in their in their growth and the biggest part to me is two things first is the knees okay and and two-year-olds will have what's called open knees and it means their knee uh the basically growth plate isn't fully developed and so they won't be able to take the concussive force that, it, that a fully developed knee will take. And so it's very important to know when your two-year-olds or are, are, their knees are closed fully and ready to go on training. So that's, that's number one. The second you're dealing with is shins. Uh, and shins are basically just remodel, remodeling as well. But shins, depending on how the horse, you know, the blacksmith is the horse shod and kind of if you're, what surface you're on, is, it can be contributed you know, some of those issues from those. But as long as your shins are good and your knees are closed, you can start training your horse forwardly, and uh, and basically, you know what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the horse stretched out in distance training, and and up to speed training, you know over the shortest period of time possible with with letting the horse develop at the same time, and so what happens is each individual make you either you can push forward and go faster because he's more precocious or he or she's more precocious or you can slow you have to slow down because the horse isn't ready for it and so basically what you're doing is every day you're assessing that individual and horse tell you is you know, like i said when we check legs every day with two-year-olds i could probably pretty much tell you with 90 percent certainty whether horses knees are closed or not without even x-ray a lot of people just x-ray the knees and they'll x-ray you know once every 30 days or whatever to see when they're closed if you just check that knee every day that horse will tell you whether inflammation whether heat you know uh, whether it's like you know basically it's kind of soft and mushy if it's still open uh, whether it's not developed you can tell if you feel it every day when that horse is changing when he's ready to go on um, usually what happens is when I feel like the horse is finally to the point where I think the knees are closed then I'll x-ray to make sure they are and then we'll go on with them but so the big thing is to make sure those knees are closed that you're not trying to do any damage while it's growing and, and the shins aren't bothering it and, the, and they're modeled you know where they can handle the stress of, of added training. So, once you get those things in there, and then you have to start using, you know, get them used to the starting gate. Um, you know, you want to get used to the paddock. You take them over there and screw them in the paddock so they know what to do when they're going to run race day. Uh, you put them with a the pony in the morning. Uh, basically, it calms them down and they'll get comfortable with it. So when you go on the post parade before a race and they're going to be with the pony, it's not the first time they've ever seen that. So what you trying to do is expose expose them to the, to the things they're going to see, you know, throughout their day when they're going to go for a race. And, uh, you know, you put them in company in the morning. So they'll learn to be next to horses. You have to bump each other or if they get behind horse and get dirt in their face. And so you're trying to, you know, train them through all those things. So they're not first times they're seeing, first time they're seeing anything when they go over a race, that, that way you can get the horse, you know, any negative reactions to anytime you're seeing something first time is, is what you're trying to do. So you're trying to get the best uh, possible experience for them first time in their race by by getting them through any of those issues, getting them over those hurdles if they had issues with any of that stuff when the first time they experienced it.
0: Uh any any you know, I know that, that one way to sort of uh you know look at you know whether a trainer's gonna have their two year olds ready or not is, is based on, you know, their historical record. But uh you know, anything in terms of a, a training pattern or workout pattern that we can look for to indicate a horse you know, might not be ready. A horse might be a, a horse just to throw out. Uh, um, you know, maybe maybe if they haven't been working five furlongs or they don't have enough works or something like that, is there anything that, that we can use just to, to maybe help us tell when a trainer's giving a horse a race?
1: Uh, again, that comes down to a lot. You need to know kind of each trainer. So some trainers won't work them past the half mile when they're young uh, because they're only running usually four and a half furlongs anyway, so they're a little over half mile um so i I, distance isn't to me as important um what i'm looking for is speed so i want to see how fast the workouts are and frequency uh and what i say frequency is is if they're not every seven to eight days i start to get concerned that there might be an issue so if you see like a a work seven days prior to the race and then you see you know you know 21 days or something the work between that one and the race prior to that one. Then I'm starting to realize, hey, there might be an issue with this horse. Either developmentally, he's, he's slowing down, they need to back off him, or he had some type of issue that they need to back off him with the horse. And those, those are the two things that I kind of look for is any breaks in the training, I want speed, and then I kind of look at speed out of the gate uh, for how precocious the horse is going to be out of the gate. And so there's a horse that might be very fast from, from working from the pole, um, but when you put them in the gate, they take a long time getting out of there, and they're slow breakers for whatever reason. They might have a week back in or just the way they're built, or like you said, it takes a while to warm up. They might be a route horse. So they're not very fast going from a standstill to, you know, you know 34 miles an hour or whatever it's going to be. Um, and some are built to go faster out of the gate. And so that's what I look for is so I want to see speed out of the gate. I want to see – relatively quicker works and by quick works i mean they're they're on the faster probably third or quarter of the workouts on that tab that day um compared to everybody else and then i want to see frequency of workouts as well and then ben, I, I like to look actually at parents a lot depending on you know the pedigree is, is tell you a lot how precocious a horse may be you know and then there's certain trainers like you said i mean you get your wesley wards that you know you can't beat him as a two-year-old at keeneland in the spring uh, and Grant, he has a lot of horses that are precocious, but I think the way he does things, I think it kind of gets him to run quicker and, and, and better first time out. Now, I don't think that necessarily means anything for three-year-olds, but uh, I, don't, I don't see a lot of his, you know, going on after after that. But he does a, a tremendous job of getting the two-year-olds right in. They're very precocious, and they come out of the gate, and they're quick, and they're fast. But, again, like we talked about with blinkers on, everything he has almost runs with blinkers on uh, because he's basically training them to run a half mile. That's all he wants them to do is run a half mile, run as fast as they can and um, that, that's one of the things you have to look for is a trainer. that that That's their priority, and that's their, their, you know, training program is they're going to be successful at it. So you look at some of those two-year-olds. Now, the, you know, the, the horses that I like are the two-year-olds that, that kind of maybe get out a little slower and come running at the end and gallop out way out in front of the field after the race. Is That's where I'm looking for the next, next you know, two, three, four races or down the line as a three-year-old. And so when I train my horses as two-year-olds, I want to see them doing that. They might not win the race, but they they better be galloping out, strong out front the rest of the field to get stronger every time they run and, and that's how I gauge the quality of, of what I'm dealing with and, and going forward how I'm going to address their races and training. Uh,
0: tell me about your process of you know claiming a horse, like what you do when you get that horse back to the barn, uh, you know how you, how you typically operate in terms of uh, um, uh, you know uh, claiming a horse off someone else.
1: Um, basically when I get to the barn they go over basically a total overhaul, overhaul and what I mean by that is we'll check their teeth I mean to me we've always done I don't know how many times when I was a kid I held the horse my dad was always his own dentist most of the time if he had the time to do it he would do all his teeth and so I'd hold the horse while he would do the teeth and and the next thing he was, he would, he would trim all the horses feet. And, and then the only thing he didn't do was nail the shoes on, but he's a master, master at teeth and feet. And, uh, so we go over them, you know, basically give them a, uh, we clip them, we give them a haircut. We, we, you know, basically do the redo their teeth, make sure their mouth is good. There's nothing cut in the so no sharp edges that they're getting good surface contact when they're eating the grain and crushing the grain, uh, basically, get their feet straightened out. Uh, address any issues that they have in feet, whether they're poor care or whether they're poor shoeing or angles or whatever we might need to do. Open up their heels a little bit more so their their foot's a little bit healthier. Uh, clip them. Uh, we want to clip them to make sure we can. If you have hair on them, you kind of it's kind of almost acts like an insulator when they're running, so it's almost like got a coat on a on a on a athlete, that's gonna sweat and it's gonna be tough for his skin to breathe. Um, so we want to get that hair off them. Um, and then we blanket them if it's a winter time, but we want that hair off them so that they can actually breathe and they can sweat and they can basically operate at maximum ability. Uh, and then what I'll normally do is I'll normally go through a warming program, um, or we'll worm am try to get it with have any worms. I won't do a test. Usually it's just easier and quicker just to throw them on a warmer and try to get that adjusted. So they don't have any parasites. And then most more often than not, I'll put them on a joint supplement and I'll put them on, uh, um, yeah, like a gastroguard or a Meprazole, like for humans, for ulcers. Uh, there's probably, you know, I would say, they say there's over 90% of horses in training have ulcers. I don't know how many, that, if that's correct, but I don't know. I would say it's, it's lower than that that actually affect them. But probably some of the biggest turnarounds I've seen is when you get a horse in there that has been treated for ulcers and you, and you put them on ulcer medication and it just turns them around and they blossom and they, they get better and they eat better and they you know, finish up their feed faster and they, they do better with the feed that you give them. Uh, it's just, it's just a better, more efficient machine. And, uh, so those are probably the main things that we go through. And then what we'll do is we'll address, you know, behavioral issues or training issues that we need to see, or, you know, basically race issues that we don't like that we'll address, whether it needs to be blinkers on or blinkers off or a shadow roll—that that does a, uh, you know, the, the basically uh, big roll that goes over their nose that, that allows them to not see below them. So they're, if they're, you know, keeping their head up cause they see shadows in, in the ground. and They don't know if they're coming up or not. Uh, so, the equipment would be the next thing we train, and then then going through the training program is is the next part, is where we try to address any issues that we don't like that we think is, is contributing negatively to their performance, and so, whether we need to train them slower, or need to train them faster, or, you know, work on gait issues go over and stand them in the gait, or if they're getting nervous in the paddock, we'll school them over the paddock. So. You know, the, 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 the next step is always the, the behavioral issues that we're trying to figure out, you know. I know we, we claimed a horse off of the guy, and, and uh, he ended up being a – in fact, he, he had a horse run against him, did Darren's fortune? and he ended up actually turning into a, be a really nice route horse, marathon horse. And you couldn't walk in the stall going forward. Uh, somewhere along the way, I imagine – I don't know this, but just the way he responded is I think he would walk into either stall or into a horse trailer, and he was really tall. Um, he's probably seventeen one. And I think he probably threw his head up and hit the crown of his head right behind his skull on the doorway. And now, he, for whatever reason, he had a negative reaction anytime he he'd get his head into a doorway. And so we had to back him into everything. We had to back him onto a trailer, back him up to a trailer, back him into the starting gate, back him into the stall. And finally, after about, you know, six or seven months with us, he finally started trusting us enough to take him in the stall going forward. But it's just one of those issues that he's trying to tell you, you know, somewhere in the past I've experienced some trauma doing this particular, you know, you know, whatever we're working with. And and he was just saying, you know, hey, uh, I don't like it. It gives me bad memories. And until he gained the trust of us, he wouldn't overcome those those bad memories, and so, you know, there's just things like that, that that happen. You know, a lot of horses, you know, you get a horse that that runs off and is really nervous in a race, and 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 you get in your barn, he's got these sharp, sharp teeth, and they've never done his teeth, and they're cutting into his mouth every time you pull on the bridle and the bit in his mouth, it, it basically pushes those jaws, those gums of his cheeks into the into the sharp teeth, and and that's why they're nervous. And once you correct those teeth and get the, the wounds healed up in their mouth, and they come, then the nerves go away. You know, the, the the nervousness before, the sweating and everything before the race or running off in the race that just goes away uh, and so the different things that you have to just address and, and figure out you know what makes this horse do the things that he's doing and what he's trying to tell us by the way he's he's training or the way he's reacting the way he's racing and and then we need to figure it out because you know they're trying to tell us everything they do they're trying to tell us something and so if you can listen well enough and and You know, observe what they're doing, then then you have a pretty good chance of of making a difference in that horse's life and career and happiness and whatever you want to call it is the general well being in the day to day life is going to change.
0: Um, Tell me about uh, working with jockeys. Uh, Do you uh, you know how do you choose what jockeys to ride your horses and uh, do you handicap the race and give them instructions or do do you let them make their own decisions?
1: (laughs) You know, basically, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I I learned one thing. And I, it could be a false story or whatever, but i always heard Bill Belichick with the Patriots gave his guys three key components of the game and said, if we do these three things well, the rest of it will fall. But, you know, that was basically what we said, you know, whether we have to, you know, worry about the, the right edge rusher or whatever it might be. You know, we have to worry about their, their uh, you know, their left guard. He's going to be – that's kind of what I've pared down my instruction jockey is basically I'm going to tell them, you know, this is what the horse does, this is where I think this race sets up, and then it's up to you once that gate opens. You use that knowledge to, to put yourself in the best position possible to win this race. Uh, I think if you give them too much things, I think the jockeys just glaze over. and they, they, they don't take in too much. And so I think if you can simplify it and, and boil it down to just one or two things that, that basically if they haven't been on the horse before or if they haven't been on it recently – you can say this is what we're dealing with. And then, if the, you know, like you say, when the handicap of the race, whether there's abundance of speed or no speed and you want to change something, or we put blinkers on and now we're thinking we're going to go to the front instead of coming from mid-pack. Just, just a simple one or two things that says, hey, this is what we've changed, this is what we expect, or this is how the race is changing. This is what, you know, you might find coming out of that gate. And then just however you break and wherever you're positioned, you use that to the best of your knowledge and see what we can do.
0: Uh, How do you choose, like, uh, in terms of the riders that you use? Is it you're looking for a jockey particular to your horse, or do you have a jockey that you just prefer to use on all your horses? Uh, What's your strategy there?
1: You know, I I change from time to time. Like, we had a really good run. I love getting weight off. So when I say that is when you use a bug rider, it's called a bug rider, which is an apprentice rider, and you get 5 or 7 pounds off or even 10 pounds off sometimes – if you, if you have a quality rider, if he's, he's quality enough, he or she's quality enough on a horse and can get a weight allowance, I think that's huge. It's hard to find. And it's becoming harder and harder. Um, you used to have, you know, at least one good apprentice rider in California, one in the East Coast, one in the Midwest. And you had kind of that every year. Now you might have three or four of them that are just questionable. They're okay. They're not great. And kind of the weight you're getting, the allowance you're getting, doesn't compensate for their, their ability. Um, so I actually had a really good run with a kid named Ed, Edgar Morales. He would come over and he'd work all the horses in the morning for me, and basically it got him accustomed to those horses, knew their traits, knew how they responded. He had really good hands, and what I mean by that, they're really soft, and so it was he was he was able to control those horses better without overpowering them, um, and so they got used to each other. The horse and the rider became became you know much more uh, of a team, and so we had a lot of success with Edgar for a long time. I haven't been able to find an a, a apprentice yet like that. There's a new kid at, at Oakland called John Geraldo, named John, John Geraldo from Maryland. Uh, he's probably going to be the Apprentice uh, Eclipse award-winning rider this year, I think. I, he's he, he's jumped on a horse and sometimes when you have riders jump on a horse like that, they're just they the naturals. The horses just work like they've never worked before. They just they're kind of eye popping almost. And I put them on two horses so far in the morning, and and they work like I've never seen them work before. And and, and I, I bore I never use the word exceptional, but they were borderline exceptional works And, and it, it, it takes a lot for me to, to give a horse that kind of nod. Um, so I'm curious to see if you ride a couple more for me, what what he might do, um, and then you know. Uh, if it's a if it's a good quality horse i'll probably go with best available uh, and so i'll look for one of the top two or three riders on, on the on standing that are riding really well at the time and then then probably my third you know requirement would be if there's a, an issue with the style that the horse runs um like there's certain now even like you ran a horse the other day that i thought. You're, you're stretching them out as a sprinter. You want to go to the front. The track at Oakland is very speed-biased, and you put uh, Arietta on him. And Arietta to me, is one of the better riders on the front end. He gets him out of the gate quick. Um, he can, he can uh, ration uh, race, uh, race in speed. And, and kind of slows it down enough in the middle portion, then he finishes strong, finishes at the top of the stretch. I think he's a great rider on the front end. So, if you have a horse that needs to be on the lead or first be on the lead or gives you a better chance to win the race on the lead, I think he's a great rider. I think John Cord is, is one of the better riders out of the gate. Uh, and, and John's getting a little bit older in his years, later in his years, but I still think he's an excellent gate rider. He comes out at gate quick. Um, I think horses, like if you need a strategic rider, I think like the the, the, the Ricardo Santanas they kind of get a little bit away with a little bit more. Dave Cohen, Santana, those guys, maybe then Vasquez get away with a little bit more kind of than some of the other riders. Uh, and what I mean by that is they might put somebody in tight or kind of cut a little bit close off and if somebody to intimidate them. If you need a, a strategic rider like that, those three guys, I think that you find them at each track. You find those guys a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more I wouldn't, it, I wouldn't call it more rough riding, but I call it what really well, you used to call race riding. Now you, can, now you can't do much of it anymore, and you can't, and you can't intimidate somebody on the rail like you used know, to, you kind know, of squeeze you know, them in and make you tie a little bit, then they'll take you down really quickly. quickly. But, those but those guys that are more uh, race riding, I think those three are probably are better race riders. I think, if, I think now, if you have a speed horse or a close, close horse course, um, um, and doesn't want somebody messing with them a lot, Florent Giroux, uh, I think he's brilliant. I think, he, you know, if you put him on the best horse in the race, I think your chance of winning are better than most riders with that best horse. Now, with him, I probably wouldn't put him on a horse that, that might be 12-1 to 1 or 14-1 to 1 because sometimes blow gives up a little bit early on a horse if he has to put too much effort into it. And so a lot of those things I base on, on you know, the horse. But if I can get weight with a quality rider, if I need speed, I'll look at that and see if two or three riders, if I, need if I need a strategic rider, I'll look into that, and then I'll look at if, 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 if my horse is going to be the best in the race, who the best available rider is to see if I can get an advantage for that. And then, the, and you know, sometimes it deals with clients, too. I'll deal with, you know, some clients prefer or they not, won't prefer a certain rider, and then I will have to make adjustments based on that. But I'll balance it back and forth with clients. But usually I'm trying to put a, a rider on that, Gives us the best chance, of whatever race we're doing, to, to succeed and and, and 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 win that race.
0: I've always preferred my trainers to choose their own riders. You know, the, so the rider has confidence in the trainer, and the trainer has confidence in the rider. Sort of go hand in hand. One hundred
1: percent. One hundred percent. Well, you know, you know, I got a lot of criticism for riding from riding Edgar, uh, and I you know I had some uh, pretty big clients at the time, and they were you know critical of riding Edgar because he was a bug rider. And if you, if you look at the stats of Edgar on our horses compared to the rest of his riding, he was winning like at 30% whenever he rode for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, when rode for and when he rode for everybody else, it was, you know, 13% or whatever it was. But he, but he had so much confidence and such a rapport with our horses that he overcome some of the other stuff. And so he didn't have to be the top rider to get the most out of these horses. He knew them well enough. He had the confidence and he was going to try 110%. I don't know how many times we, you know, got third when he could easily got fourth or fifth or got second one, we could have got, you know, third or fourth or fifth. Uh, and, he uh, and he was still trying it at the end and, and finish it out. Whereas some of those other riders, if they have to work too hard, you what know, they got? A, they, got a, they got a bigger horse in the next race that they need to save their energy for, and they're going to kind of give you a little time, so they're not going to give you their hundred and ten percent. So there are a lot of a lot of personal well. Uh, relationships that work into that, and and some of that goes into to race riding. Right? Just not, it's just not who's the best rider out there. Who's the you know who's winning the meet or whatever. It's like you say, it, it, it there, there's a rapport that comes with with working with certain riders, certain trainer, and certain horse, certain horse.
0: Um, well, look, I appreciate you uh, taking all this time to give us just this this uh, plethora of information. Uh, you, I, one more thing i want to ask because you brought it up when you talked about jockeys is. Um, uh, So you think weight matters. Tell me a little bit about weight and, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and horse racing and its relationship to you as a, as a, as a trainer, um, as a handicapper, I've never much paid attention to it, but I'm curious your thoughts.
1: I I think there's, I shouldn't say weight matters, but it does, in a sense it does, but I think how a jockey uses their weight matters as well. So So I think there's some people that have natural balance and, one of the things, I think one of the things, strongest thing Pat Day had as a rider was that horse never knew he was up there. He was so well-balanced and so quiet on there. It was it was like there was nothing on the horse's back, no matter what weight he carried, whether it was a 118 or 112. Um, so when you have a rider that can do that, and not many riders can do that, it makes a big difference. Now, when you get these other riders, you know, like the, the David Cohens, they're bigger riders. He may carry 120. He may carry 122, natural weight, and that's not with any lead in the saddle. And then you start swinging around, whipping hard or or driving hard, and you're shifting that weight around, it's hard for a horse to to compensate. So imagine carrying a sack of potatoes on your back, but just a sack of potatoes. Now imagine that sack of potatoes is like a a calf that's the same pound, 80 pounds whatever calf on the back of your shoulders, and you're trying to walk or run, and that thing's moving around, flailing all over the place. That's the difference, and that's how when a rider uses weight, it makes a big difference. And so one of the things I think, you know, with Edgar Morales was he was natural 112 or 110 at the time. He didn't need any weight if you're carrying 112. But when you carried 120, you know, there was eight pounds of lead to sit on the saddle. It wasn't moving. And so that weight was more balanced and there was less of it moving around on the horse's back. Uh, Rafael model is a good example. He keeps a, a kind of constant 112 um but a lot of these bigger riders now they're getting you know they get older or more advanced in age they are carrying 118 120 naturally and so now those bigger riders moving around on the horse's back he's not centered he's not you know balanced and now he's starting to push and ride and, and move forward and, and you know he's starting to pick his arm up and starting to whip and you're all over the place and it makes a big difference for that horse and so it takes a lot of energy to compensate for that balance that you're, you're taking away from them when a horse is riding that, you know, striding out naturally. So I think, I think not necessarily always is 100% weight might be a misnomer, but it's how that weight is used on the horse. And so, you know, some of those guys, they're bigger and stronger. They can't, those little horses, smaller horses can't compensate for that as well. And so the, the horse runs a much different race when you have a bigger, heavier, stronger rider on them than you would, if you had somebody lighter that they didn't know that was on there, you know, that they didn't, uh have to compensate as much for the, the more weight and the more you know balance issues that come out with a bigger rider or stronger rider on
0: them um I'll, I'll close with this uh who's your favorite jockey of all time trainer of all time that's not not in your family and uh your favorite horse of all time
1: mm. favorite horse probably of all time is gate dancer for us um actually take that back uh uh, growing up my favorite horse of all time was worse named gray bar which nobody has an idea who gray bar was uh but gray bar was uh a gelding that my father claimed and ended up winning the uh omaha no the Cornhusker handicap which was the big race in omaha nebraska exarbon uh at very long odds and it was just one of those things that there was a uh, you know those cinderella stories you never thought would happen and uh, it does it's just like uh you know, it's like Stetson Bennett in the, the championship game last night for Georgia. You know, he's a walk-on, goes to Juco, comes back, and ends up starting for the national championship. You know, so that's kind of that story was for me when I was a kid. Physical-wise, Gate Dancer was the biggest, you know, anomaly or freak that I've ever been around as an athlete. That horse could run faster than any horse I've ever been around. Now, if he ever had the focus and the, the mental side of it, he would have been unbelievable. But he had his, his ADHD issues or whatever you want to call him, and he would run when he wanted to um trainer probably I have to say Charlie Whittingham out in California um I think he was just one of those guys that uh you know i I didn't know any like the Ben Jones very really well, I knew Woody Stevens, I thought his impressive Belmont streak was was about as good as I've seen Alan church I thought was great always but Charlie Whittingham out in California was always the guy that I thought his horses he was just a good horseman and and he was there, one of those guys that his work ethic was was Second to none. That's the way I grew up was my father's work ethic was unbelievable. And still, the day he passed away, he could outwork anybody that I, that was around. Um, but Charlie wouldn't have to get there at 3.30 in the morning he'd be there before anybody would there. And just the, the animal husbandry, the... the, the I mean, his, his guard dog was a goose. He had a goose in the barn that would would scare people off. I mean, the night watchman had to carry a broomstick around. He'd, he'd go through about three broomsticks a year because that grease would cheer, chew up the end of the broomstick and it'd shorten it up. He had to fight him off to feed the horses at night, you know, when he checked the horses. But it's just that you don't see people like that anymore. That just have that way with animals, no matter what it is. But his 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 communication with horses was unbelievable. And um, he's just a, a, an interesting person to be around the stories he had. So probably Charlie Leningham, <laughs> Uh, gate dancer as a horse, Go, except going way back to Graybar, um, and then rider, maybe maybe Lafitte Pinkeye, uh, just a, just the a discipline that he exhibited, and you know, just a he was kind of one of those guys ahead of his time that was like nutrition and fitness and the whole the whole lifestyle was based at succeeding at racing and probably not a stronger rider that I've ever seen the last 16th of a mile, the last eighth of a mile. If a horse was tired and done finished, he would care. I mean, it was almost like he was underneath and picking them up and carrying them. Um, he was so strong. He picked that horse up and get to finish and, and still win the race. Uh, even though the horse was like, I'm done, man, I'm, 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 I'm worn out. And he would get him somehow to finish, but probably I'd probably seen Lafitte. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of good riders out there, but I think Lafitte probably still is, the most impressionable to me out of any rider when i was younger
0: well great well look tom again i very much appreciate your time breaking all this stuff down for uh for me and and my students Uh, i mean heck i learned a lot here as probably as much as they did and uh again i appreciate everything and uh i'll see you down at oakland soon
1: sounds good good, marshall all right thanks take care thanks again tom Bye. Bye bye